What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions and... Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. zamanlarda dünyayla tek bağlantım şu bilinmeyen karşı pencere bana hep aynı müzikle karşılık veren kim bu nasıl biri bir sabah onu bulmaya çıkmıştım ama sonra bir daha düşündüm. Belki de bilmemek ve hayal etmek daha iyidir. Benim gibi bir müzevi olabilir miydi? Ya da belki küçük bir kız çocuğu. 
vakit kadar önce bilinmez bir oyun oynayan. Her şey çok çabuk gelişti. Şu şüphe uyandırıcı ağrı öğrenmek için inat edişim, bilmek isteyişim. Sonra da karanlık. Etrafım saranlık bir sessizlik. Sessizlik. Her şey bizi kış gelmeden önce teknelerin gölgeleri üzerine vuran uykudaki güneşin aniden açmasını sağlayarak aşıkları dışarı uğratan riyakar bağrın verdiği sözlere inanmaya itiyor. Kış gelmeden önceki her şeye inanmaya istiyor. Tek üzüntüm anla. Acaba tek mi? O hiçbir şeye son vermek zorunda değil. Her şey... Her şey ana hatları içinde kalmalı. Kelimeler itinayla seçilmeli. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Agatha Luz. Hi, thanks for having me back. Also back in the booth is Mr. John Adam. Hey, how are you doing? On this episode, we are looking at Theo N. Galopoulos' 1998 film, Eternity and a Day. The film stars Bruno Gantz as Alexandros, or Alexander, depends on what subtitles you read, a poet who thinks he's at the end of his life. He rescues an Albanian refugee boy who lives on the street and wipes windshields for spare change. This is another one of those movies where it might be good to listen to the episode before watching the film, though we will be spoiling things, so if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, you have been warned. As with a few of the films this month, this is a request from one of our Patreon donors. If you want to request a film for us to cover, be sure to visit patreon.com slash projection booth, where you can become a donor. And at the projectionist manager or regional manager tiers, you can request a movie too. I have a feeling that I know the answer to this question, but I will ask anyway. Agatha, when was the first time you saw Eternity and a Day? And what did you think? A few weeks ago. And it's one of those films that I knew I was walking into and it was going to be very slow paced. And I'm, I'm fine with those movies. I love Tarkovsky. So coming in, I was like, I know this is going to be a little like Tarkovsky. So I'm just going to sit with it. Yeah. The, the first half an hour, it's gorgeous. It's, but it's slow. And if you're not willing to have that patience to get through, it moves fast after that. Once you get accustomed to the speed, time just kind of has a different meaning and it feels short at the half end. And John, how about yourself? It's a little longer for me. I was born and raised in Greece, so I was familiar with Angelopoulos from a young age. His, his, his name is known in Greece, although surprisingly, he's not someone who you actually are exposed to without having to look for him. It's not, he's not someone who would be shown on TV. I don't even think I ever saw any of his film being advertised in the cinema, even though it was around the time that he would be uh, releasing new films. And I think the first time that I watched this was uh, in university when I was specifically looking to watch all the Palm Door winners in the 90s and the 2000, and this just was one of them. And I, uh, unlike Agatha, I 
I it was not what I expected just because this is so atypical for big films of the time. Uh, but it was, you know, something about it just captivated me. And since then, I've sought out all of the other Angelopoulos films. I will say that this was a first time watch for me as well. I had never heard of Angelopoulos as a filmmaker beforehand, as far as I know. Not really that familiar with Greek film. Uh, I've had to kind of like stretch my brain to think of any Greek films that I've seen. I guess Yorgos Lathamos's films. Um, uh, uh, we talked about uh, Singapore Sling. Um, you know, we talked about Z. So we've we've hit like a couple Greek films, but very very foreign to me. And then uh, I tried to watch this a few times, and the pace, like you were saying, Agatha, just wasn't clicking with me. Where I was just like, wow, I really need to pay attention to this movie. And finally, I kind of like cleared the deck, cleared the schedule, everything was just like, okay, I'm here for this now. And I have to say, I was delighted by it. I really enjoyed watching this film. And once I got into it, I enjoyed that pacing. I enjoyed the long takes. Some of these takes in here are just incredible. I always love Bruno Gans, even when he's being dubbed in Greek. And then this kind of, you know, fractured time thing that they do at times, that there is this kind of magical realism at times as well. I Yeah, I was here for this movie. I was very glad that we ended up seeing this. I agree. And, and it is one of those movies that rewards your full attention. And that's harder to do these days. Our attention is split through so many different things. Our media runs faster. So to take that minute to just really sit and be present for the movie is incredible. And it's a movie that makes you want to do that. I'm glad you mentioned Tarkovsky earlier, not because I think the two filmmakers are similar in terms of the topics and the themes that they cover, but I do think they have uh, something in common, the fact that you kind of need to watch both uh, of the filmmakers' films in the theaters because that constraint that being in a dark room watching at a big screen and not having the freedom to move elsewhere or to pause, I think that definitely helps with the viewing experience when it comes to either an Angelopoulos film or a Tarkovsky film. It does, but just because it puts your blinders on so you have nothing to focus on but the film, and then you dive into it like you're in a good book, and when you come back out of the movie, where did it go? I know there are parts of it that still haunt me and I've wanted to go back and watch and I'm not sure if it would work out of context but having just sit there for the whole thing having just sat there for the whole movie everything falls into a rhythm it is poetic poetry and poetic rhythms definitely play way into this film and I love that there are Moments that you get, even from the opening of the film, where you hear these boys talking about, uh, what is it, an island that comes out of the sea? It's Atlantis, possibly? That, that, that's what I thought as well, although it's never specified. So they talk about this ancient city that comes out of the sea once a month, and we hear them talking about it, and then we're, we're zooming in very slowly on the window of this one particular house, then we cut to them going out into the ocean and swimming, and they're going to go look for uh, this ancient city. And you hear Alexander's mother calling for him. And I really like that you get that idea of the sea. You get her calling out to him again later on. There are moments where time is just kind of all jumbled up. Like even as we're seeing them go out into the sea, 
we stop on that water and we move across the water and then we go up into the apartment where now the old version of Alexander, the Bruno Gans version, is there. And it's all very continuous and this whole idea of breaking down barriers between time periods, especially later on, we'll talk about the scene with the poet. I just really like how they make it all very, very seamless and make it all such a continuous thing because it's so much of this is one man's memory and just the way that thoughts come in and out and rhyme or don't rhyme the way that, you know, he'll think of one thing and it will lead to another thought. There's a lot of sort of analogous to word association as, and it's, 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 it's incredible to think that the film takes place in a period of 24 hours, but there's just so much that happens in that, you know, in, in his head, in his memory, whereas half or more of the film takes place. And there is in that initial scene that you, that you mentioned, the, what, the one that the film begins with, that's, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that's the only scene where we see Alexandros as a little boy, not his current age, in every other flashback, he's not only his old self, but he's dressed identically, uh, signifying this molding of the past and the present and how important those memories are to him, especially in this time where he's presumably going through this terminal illness that is never specified. Much like, much like a sort of a lyrical poem where you have that characteristic vagueness. Like there's that, you know, you never know what he's, uh, what he's sick of and other things like I was, uh, this, in this watching, I was amused how they never actually give the dog a name. He's just referred to as the dog. I don't know. I thought that was funny. One of the things I find the most beautiful about that opening scene is that close up, just very, very, very slow going into the house itself. It's establishing all of uh, nature and the environment as its own character. So from the very first, we know the land is important. And I agree having Alexandros as a child, and this is the only time we see it, it kind of works as an origin story for the character. This is kind of the heart of his being, this one moment near the sea as a child. Traditionally, water is a transitional or a transformative substance in literature and film, this entire film being about journey, a journey through life, a journey through a physical journey, because we also have the child who is a refugee. So there's a physical journey as well. Having the premise or rather like the thesis statement as the very first scene sets up the film beautifully for you to make all of those connections later on. Yeah, and apparently a lot of his work also deals with borders, and we get that whole idea of going to the Albanian border and the river, and then you could even say that the ocean is that border, you know, where land ends and the ocean begins, and so many scenes take place at the beach. I would say 60% of the film, or maybe yeah, it just, there's quite a few. And especially as we move forward and as we get the second significant flashback, that all takes place at the beach. But before we even get there, I really like this just little moment of him playing music. And then the music stops because music is super important to this movie. The music stops and then you hear the music again and he talks in voiceover or thoughts that 
the person across the way, he will play music and the person in the apartment across the way will answer in music. And we do another slow zoom in. And at first I thought we were going to do like a slacker thing. And it's like, okay, we're done with this guy. Now we're going to go to the person across the way, but we just see the curtains. And then he talks about how he's never actually seen the person who answers him with music. That it could be another old man. It could be a little girl. He has no idea who it is, but there is that human connection even though you don't know who that human is. One thing that kind of makes uh, Angelopoulos hard to uh, read and hard to interpret is that you cannot watch his films in isolation. He's said in multiple interviews that he considers all his films to do to be part of the same film, just chapters, different chapters, or of the same film. And, and if you look at through, throughout his filmography, he deals with his core themes, the borders, like you mentioned, Greece's place in the world and, and how Greece's history is affects, has affected its modern standing. And I've, I've often kind of seen that scene that you just described, Mike, that him having this very vague, this very, musical connection with his neighbor and not making up his mind to talk to him as maybe a reference to Greece isolation throughout most of the 20th century. Because if, if you look at Greece in its place in the Balkans, and Angelopoulos cares a lot about the Balkans, it was the only non-communist state until the 90s and when the, the finally the communist regimes fell in the, in the 89 to 91 around that time, there was this massive confusion, this massive influx of refugees that were fleet, that were able, finally they were able to leave those countries. And of course, Greece had to find a way to deal with that, with that crisis. And they dealt, some of it they dealt well, some of it they didn't do so well. And then all those wars broke out, which didn't affect Greece directly, but of course it had this indirect effect as being the neighbors of Greece, like the Bosnian War, the Kosovo War later, like that took place just a little after this film was released, the Albanian War or, or sort of unrest that happened while this film was being shot. I did find that sort of a very poignant, very an interesting thing to sort of juxtapose the isolation of Alexandros, where, because he is isolated throughout the entire film, uh, even from his own family and that the larger context of Greece. All of the language in this film, there's a need for connection. And there's so many different types of language. There's the poetry, letters, speaking. And then, of course, there's the music where there's a call and a callback. Alexandros is also a poet, which means he is communicating with the dead at all times, because whatever he's bringing to his poetry is built on the backs of everybody before him. Plus, he is that back for other people. It's a constant back and forth of new language, and it includes music in it. And the diegetic music in this is just wonderful. I didn't notice through the entire film at first that we only, our major theme, that was about it, right? There was maybe another couple of themes in there somewhere, but it was all diegetic, except toward the end. It is mostly variations of that one theme, and that's kind of common in Angelopoulos films. He will have one good piece of music and he'll just repeat it over and over again. It's funny because it works. That repetition became like a really a lodestone. It was an ability to hang on to something in the narrative. And in fact, he he's, he's same thing with the topics. He's he often defends himself, saying, "Well, when you hear a good song, you don't mind that the chorus is repeating over and over." So he says, "I, I repeat things in my movies. I repeat things across my my entire filmography, and it's it's just how it works." Well, if we have a second to talk about that first shot again, we do have that theme, and it's kind of a bouncy theme. It, it has a, a higher rhythm to it than I would have expected, 
and set up against that very, very, very slow zoom, you kind of get this weird sense of everything is speeding up and slowing down at the same time. As an audience member, that's kind of telling me time is going to be a little different in this film. I'm, I, ha- I can't really trust the time I think I'm in. Even though this film does play around with time and does have this poetic nature, there's really a very strong narrative to it. I mean, this whole idea of him finding this Albanian boy who's just kind of a part of a whole group of boys who are kind of the dregs of society. They're out there with their squeegees trying to make a few coins and this kind of stuff. The cops are chasing them. He meets this boy, saves him, watches him go off with another boy. And I'm just like, okay, but then he'll come back and it becomes this whole journey of these two together. And then they'll, they'll part at times and go off on their own like side quests and then come back together again. It's just like, it really tells such a very strong story, even when you have these, and I don't want to call them pit stops, but just these kind of like branches off where he goes to his daughter's house and he's trying to get his daughter to take the dog because he's going to be going to the hospital the next day to basically to die. Then he uh, brings all these letters and his daughter starts to read a letter. And then suddenly he's transported back to the past. And, and to your point from earlier, he's no longer that person who he was in the past. He's the Alexandros who he is in the present. So he's there in the trench coat and the beard and all of this being part of that history. And just he's an active participant. It's a little Christmas Carol, except he actually is part of it. It's not like he's off to the side with the ghost of Christmas past watching things. He's an active participant in his own memories. I loved that because it's not just us looking at his history. It's him as he is now reflecting with the knowledge he has now on the events of his past. I'd like to add, it's a Giorgio Armani trench coat. Like Agatha said, you, you this film is something that rewards you watching. And I've seen it many times, but the th- one thing that I noticed this time is at the end credits, there's a line that says, Bruno Gantz was dressed by Giorgio Armani. I, I don't know why that stuck out so much. I see Bruno Gantz in a trench coat, and I'm just like, well, he's an angel, right? Bruno Gantz is one of the few actors, well, big actors that Angelopoulos used uh, more than once. Like he used Marcelo Mastroianni twice, although the second his second time was a much minor role. And he also uses Bruno Gantz in in The Dust of Time in 2008. In um, the movie that stars – that's a star-studded film, by the way, but it stars uh, – what's his name? Willem Dafoe. But Bruno Gantz is the most interesting character in that film, too. I kind of feel Willem Dafoe's character is somewhat – not disappointing, but maybe – a little bit underwhelming. Is Defoe playing a director in that one? From what I've read, and like I said, I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, his films. Sounds like directors are often his main characters. And then with this one, he kind of switches it up and has a, a, a poet as his main character. He did want to be a poet, but didn't feel like he had the language for it. So he became a filmmaker. So he didn't have the spoken language, but he had the visual language. So in a way, he became a visual poet. He was a firm believer in the idea that art can change the world, the world. And in, in his view, poetry was the strongest of art. So that's what he kind of wanted to do. And he had good reason to because the first 30 years of his life were filled with all kinds of political and personal hardships that he kind of witnessed as he was growing up in, in a very, interesting part of Greece. Like he to hear him talk about it is very jarring. Like he says, I was born and a year later you had the 
1936 dictatorship in Greece, and then the the Italians came for the Second World War, and then the Germans came, uh, and then we had the Civil War where his father was sent for execution, and then somehow miraculously just showed up one day where he was pardoned at the last minute. And of course, a few years later, you had the the right wing military coup, the military junta in Greece that happened in the in the late 60s and just ended right as he was uh, releasing his first uh, few films. So he definitely saw this, uh, wanted to have this very strong ability to change the world through his poetry, but he just wasn't good enough. So he decided to do it through film. And he does, he is one of those people that believes that films do have a very strong power in society, like uh, not necessarily in this film, but in previous one in Ulysses Gaze, which stars Harvey Keitel, that in the beginning of the film, Harvey Keitel has just made a film and he has, is causing all this kind of havoc in, in various parts of Europe, especially, and, and Greece as well. So he's definitely, he definitely is one that does believe in the, in the changing or reformative power of art. There are those moments in here talking about the Albanian situation, and especially, I think it's the second time he sees the boy, where he sees the boy getting picked up off of the street by these two older guys, or yeah, I guess they're not boys, they're they're men, seeing he and his buddy being picked up and taken away, and he follows them, and it becomes this really creepy, seedy situation of all of these people going in and it looks like it's an auction, a boy auction. And these uh, people that are speaking English are just like, oh, yeah, I want that one. This is really not good at all. So just talking about how awful the lives of these Albanian immigrants is, it's just very, very striking. And I didn't necessarily expect the film to get that heavy at that point, but it sure did. I wish I could say that it's as dark as it got for the refugees, but as a filmmaker, being able to tell two totally different stories and have them combine in in a way that is just natural is is outstanding. I, I can't wait to see the rest of his work, by the way. We're given this scenario where it seems to be almost all of the refugees are children. And we get stories later on about how they cross over. We see how some of them end up either in auctions or otherwise. So we have a whole kind of side story. It's, it's adjacent. I won't say side per se, but they're running concurrently between a man's journey out of a world and a child's journey into a new one. Just to give a little bit of context for people that might not be familiar with the subtleties of, of uh, Balkan politics, the Albania was a communist country until the 90s. So there was almost no immigration. But when the borders opened, there were a lot of Albanians that kind of crossed the border into mostly Greece, although Italy as well. And Albanians in Greece are not too dissimilar for how the U.S. perceive Mexican immigrants in the sense that it's a, there's a strong presence uh, of them there. But there's also the cause of a lot of anti-immigration and xenophobic sentiment. And Angelopoulos doesn't make that explicit because he doesn't like to make his films very so on the nose, but there's definitely that is present in the film, especially with a police chasing the children, trying to, to deport them. And especially during this time that the film was filmed. So the film was released in 98, but it was probably made around 97 where there was a, a sort of a civil war going on in Albania where the sort of the government was uh, dismantled and the, gang, the gangs took over. The kid talks about that a little bit when in that 
border scene, a lot of kids were left parentless and they tried to sneak into the border, especially on those border towns in Albania. And I suspect the kid who's also nameless in the film is part of that wave of children that crossed the border around that time. And they had nothing else to do in Greece, but be either street urchins, beggars, or window cleaners and the like. So you're saying that Albania was sending their rapists, their drug dealers, not their best people. Well, that, that's that's the rhetoric. But yeah, so it, it it is remarkably similar how easy it is to explain to someone who has no idea about all the sort of the tension and say he's just like Mexicans here. And oh, it's 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 amazing how accurately that described because I feel like xenophobia is the same everywhere, regardless of where you are. When they make it up to the border, and the camera pans over and we suddenly were in i mean it's all one again it's one take and it's the cameras on them it pans over and suddenly it's like foggy and it doesn't even look like it's the real world and you get this huge fence with barbed wire at the top and then what looks like other kids that have tried to climb out over the fence and they're all just frozen there or shot there and my god we're suddenly like in a horror film for five minutes i'm like no get the hell out of there and the guy who comes out it it was like the mouth of sauron coming out of mordor i'm just like no 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 get out of there and eventually they do run away but i was just like this is terrifying and it's hard to tell whether those people are dead or they're just, you know, trying to hide in the fog, like as not to move, because you can see a couple of them move. But I've wondered if that was intentional or just because that's a long take. Like that kid has the monologue and all those people presumably have to wait on the fence till the camera pans over. So they're probably getting tired because it's not easy to hang from like a, a, a wire fence for that long. So I'm wondering if the movement that we see is intentional or just some kind of extra that couldn't take it anymore. And that, uh, you know, sorry, sorry, you can't ruin this take just because one person moves, so you might as well keep it in. That was another one of those shots where I was like, man, I wish I... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I was in a movie theater right now because the film is just so nice to look at even in that horrible moment but to have that image up on a big screen i think would be really breathtaking yeah he loves to shoot on fog on on foggy weather just because one thing is just he likes the aesthetic of it but it's so good for lighting if you're in a heavy cloudy day because he does such long takes and he moves the camera around that if it was a sunny day the hard shadows would just make the cinematography much more difficult, but in foggy condition, it's just you can move the camera in 360 degrees and it just won't matter. So it's it's kind of a, both of those factors working in his favor. 
when they are at the beach, a lot of times very bright and sunny. Like he has that memory of his wife as his daughter is reading one of her letters and he suddenly is transported back into that moment. I think it's a baby shower that they're celebrating out on this beach, bright and sunny and beautiful. And then I think about other parts of the film when he's driving through the city to or from his daughter's place, when there are other moments where they're out on the street and it just like, I just remember it being overcast through so much of the film. Every time Alexander remembers something from his past, the screen does get a lot brighter, the colors pop more, but everybody also wears white. So in a way, you can think of this as the sanitized version of his memory, where everything is so much better now that it's past and he's looking back on it. It's better, but it's not perfect. When he first sees his wife, Anna, again, the first words out of his mouth are, why are you crying? And it's like, okay, you know, so it's not all hunky-dory in the past, which is nice. It's not miserable. You said it's sanitized, and I agree with you 100%, but it's not just like, everything was so much better for me back then. There is a, a tinge of nostalgia, a tinge of sadness to these memories that he has. And that's reinforced by a couple of things as I see it. It's first of all, he, yes, everybody's dressed in white, but he's in that very, despite being Giorgio Armani, it kind of, it looks very ugly, uh, or relatively moody trench coat. And he's also, there's this sense of guilt that in just in, especially in his tone of voice, uh, that he is not, he hasn't lived up to some sort of standard. Like they have a fight with his wife at some point in one of those flashbacks, but it's never 100% clear why the fight happens, except he wants to go and see the, the boat on this other part of the shore or something like that. And then he constantly talks about, there's a part where they talk about his politics. They say, Oh, how's the left going? And he says, about what? And then there's uh, this, uh, frequent mention of his travels, like, Oh, this, because the, the, his flashback is set in right around 1966, which is coincidentally it's also right before the coup, uh, the election that led to the coup. And they actually do mention that very briefly. He talks about how his book is going to be released in France this year and he's going there or something like that. So there's definitely a hint of disappointment and a hint of, you know, I wasn't good enough for my wife or, and it's not explicitly stated. It's just that's how kind of I interpreted that, those flashbacks in a sense. I sort of interpreted the flashback emotion as regretful that he couldn't appreciate what he had at the time or or recognizing where he had faltered as a partner. And it feels, too, that he's not 100% with his own abilities as a poet. It feels like he wishes that he could have been better when it came to that. And even that game that he plays with the boy later on about finding words and stuff, it feels like... Maybe he doesn't know all the words, and had he known all the words, he would have been a better poet. I'm fairly certain he does almost explicitly say that, where he, he just doesn't know if he ever had the words. Yeah, and he says that about also the Solomos, the poet in the in the 19th century. Although, to, to bring a little levity to it, you know, people just bring him words. How does he know that they know what they mean? How does he know that they know. just make up stuff? <laughs> hey, galooftafum, give me, give me five bucks. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever played the uh, board game Balderdash, but you try to make up fake definitions for words, and some of those fake definitions, for me, are better than the real definitions. Dissolfink. The Dissolfink is a filter that 
purifies Amazon River water. A Disselfink is a stylized bird found in Pennsylvania Dutch art. Balderdash, the game where you don't have to know the definitions of real words. Play Balderdash. It's a definition of a good time. Of course, it's not meant none of that. It, almost the entire film, as and but especially those scenes are not meant to be taken literally. There, like I said, the, the entire film has this poetic overtone to it that is just you know it's it's the emotion and it's the symbolism that he's really trying to get across, not the literal thing of what's happening. Yeah, he tells that story about Solomos, and then I read an interview with Angelopoulos, and he was uh, said that he. St- told that story about Solomos paying people for words. And he said that to a Solomos um, scholar. And the guy's just like, that's bald. Yeah. Speaking of balderdash, that's balderdash. What the hell are you talking about? That never happened. And Ankylopoulos is just like, you know what? I don't care. It's such a pretty story. I'm just going to keep it. And I'm going to exploit that for my own thing. And I was like, go for it. That's great. I love the idea of a poet paying for words instead of being paid for words. To add to that, I love the idea that he couldn't finish his masterpiece because he hadn't bought enough words. Well, for me, I love, absolutely love that they just are there talking about things, talking about Solomos, and then the camera again just goes across the water, and then there's Solomos there in his 19th century garb. He's got his top hat on and everything, and it's just... He's there in the movie for a little bit, and then he goes away, and then he comes back again later on this very surreal bus trip that they take. That is so interesting. The people that are on the bus, the people that are outside the bus, those three people in yellow on cycles that just keep going by. Those are the only ones I couldn't figure out. I'm like, I have no idea who these guys are or why they're important, but they kind of look like official seamen or or maybe a, a, a biohazard? Yeah, they just look like raincoats, yeah. I was reminded of biohazard as well, so it wasn't just you. For one thing, uh, I've seen, I'm fairly certain, although I can't remember exactly, I think it was Landscape in the Mist, although there might be more than one, where he's used exactly that same imagery, three, three or more people in a trench coat, just completely unrelated to the scene. So again, we have this this theme of repetition that Angelopoulos does. It's also, you know, if you ever taken a poetry class or read about poetry class, they teach you about the verses that you come up don't necessarily have to make a logical sense. And just to put it very, very broadly, and I think that's just how I've always interpreted parts of this film is just there's something poetic about it, but you you don't necessarily they don't necessarily represent something. And even the people inside the bus to go back to that scene, you know, the the couple and then the political activist, which I'm not sure what he's supposed to represent in, in 90s in the Greece, carrying a red flag, or the three musicians. I don't think they're necessarily meant to represent a specific thing or to be that there might be a one-to-one correspondence to something, although you can certainly make that connection. He leaves it open. I think it's just, you know, that that free association thing that he does and they're supposed to exude some kind of emotion, which I'm not sure what it's supposed to be, but it definitely works on that level. I sort of thought of that bus ride as Chiron crossing the river. Everyone who came onto the bus wasn't necessarily a person, but a symbol for Greece and war, couples having trouble in their relationships, music. Other, I feel like that was everything that was in Alexander's head at the time was on that bus. I did have a question, though. On the bus, a whole bunch of people get on between scenes, and the bus stops again to let all of these people out, and someone says, the bodiless. 
I don't know if that's a place. It is a place, but it also means bodiless. <laughs> okay, because but it is I it thought- is a place. Yeah, I I never I never made that connection listening to the film in Greek. Only when I saw the subtitle, I said, uh, uh, that maybe it was intentional. I don't know, or if it was just the subtitler that was his or her interpretation. I don't know. Well, given what I had, it sounded to me like this was a stop for the shades that we entered into some mythological realm. This movie is so tough when it comes to subtitles for a non-Greek speaker because it's so important the words that are being brought to him by the boy and that they have the meaning that we see translated into English, but then they have such a, a bigger, more grand interpretation. I was so glad to read that interview with Angelopoulos where it was just like, okay, well, this means very late at night, but it can mean this, and it can mean this, and it can mean this, and it's just like, oh, okay, or like the one where it's like a stranger, and it's like, well, it's not a stranger. It's more like you're a stranger to yourself. It's so much richer that way, but what are you going to do? I mean, subtitles are subtitles, and it's not like, you you know, maybe we pause the film for five minutes and be like, okay, let's have a little <laughs> lesson here in, in the etymology of this word and tell you all of these different meanings and how it could be applied to the film. But, you know, we don't have those breaks, so we just kind of have to, like, read into this and read more about it or just take it at face value and be like, okay, he's bringing him the word stranger late at night okay well it is you know uh he is kind of a stranger to himself to the world and yeah late at night this is like his last hurrah before he goes to the hospital where he decides that he's going to die so okay that's great but yeah words are so critical to this film and there's not much dialogue here so every word matters yeah, and he certainly makes films that are not meant to, you watch it once and then you, you get the film. You have to think about it. And he's very, he's very aware of that fact. You know, he makes, he makes a lot of four hour films and then he also makes two hour films, but they feel like four hour films anyway. So yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely an element that you have to, to really take it in and think about it and watch the film again and maybe understand the language that he uses and what the nuances of the language that he that he employs in his films are. There were times where things would start to happen and I wouldn't necessarily know if we had had a cut. And I would be like, wait, is this still the same shot? And the one that really caught me was the wedding scene. And I'm just like, I don't think that there's been a cut in this whole thing. And it's like one of those where, to your point, John, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch this again and just to see where those cuts are because he is great at long takes. And it's for me, if you have a filmmaker who's doing so many long takes, then I want to see where those cuts are to be able to appreciate what's in the take, what came before the take and kind of use that cut as punctuation and say, okay, this might be the start of a new, let's say sentence for this. And that wedding scene, it felt like it was all one sentence and the way speaking of music, the way that the music talks to one piece to another, you've got the, what is it? The violinist. And then the, I 
guess it was an accordion. It sounded a little shrill to me to be an accordion, but the way that they go back and forth and then the way that the bride starts interacting with the groom and the way the camera moves around and is back to uh, him. And I'm guessing it's his housekeeper that he's known for about three years. And he ends up giving her his dog that the music cuts out completely during that exchange and then goes back. You know, it's like, wow, my jaw was open as I'm watching this scene, just going, this is amazing. What is this filmmaker doing? This is fabulous. There are many of those times in the film where you think, has there been a cut? And most likely the answer is hasn't. The one scene or the one shot, sometimes he's scenes are just one shot and sometimes just two or three but uh the one is where the kid is being kidnapped you know you see his, the camera is on his face and I'm, I'm i'm doing a lot of gesturing with my hands now which i just realized you can't see but the camera is on his face and then he pans around to the to the kid where they go into that alley and they're being dragged to the van and we know that he's watching because we just saw him watching but any other film would have cut his face reacting and getting out of the store but this doesn't it stays on the kids that are being dragged into the van as the van drives away and we just see alexandros coming from behind the camera in the same direction getting into his car the camera is again there hasn't been a cut so there's there's it's it's just it's not only long takes but they're so well choreographed to use that for lack of a better word they're planned very meticulously and they have a very specific effect it's not just long takes for the cycle of long take, there's a specific thing that he does, and he doesn't shy away from moving the camera. The beginning of that take may look very different from the end of that take, just like in the wedding scene that you outlined, Mike, but it doesn't. And that's why, that's why I mentioned earlier that the cinematography might be just right, and that's why he relies on, like, the, diff- the diffuse light of, uh, of shady days, because if the sun comes out in that... Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. At five minutes. Oh, the whole take is ruined. A take like that just shows us that Alexander's point of view isn't always what we're supposed to be following. Uh, in that moment, because we're not seeing his reaction to seeing some children kidnapped, we're in with the children. And that's the most important story right now. But I did want to go back to um, the wedding scene just for a second. There's a bunch of children that hang onto a fence in between, you know, where the um, bride and groom are dancing. They dance through a kind of courtyard and there are kids hanging onto the fence. And it just brought me right back to that moment on the border with the children frozen or dead on the fence. It's a really nice kind of this is a celebratory moment. And there is a fence. There's a border between these two types of worlds. The repetition of visual motifs is something that he does really well. One instance is 
they're trying to get to a, a better place, comparatively speaking. And then the other instance, the same exact motif, but it's now this is the, this is the better place. You know, speaking of the wedding, it's a celebration of life, a celebration of unity. So that's, that's, I, I, I didn't notice that as well. And it was very, I think, I think it does that sort of thing very well. The use of repetition is just an old, old storyteller technique. And it's uh, usually referred to in fairy tales as the rule of three. And you'll find three in a lot of things, the fates and uh, pretty much anything you can find the number three in when it comes to mythological or fairy tale items. The repetition of the children on the fences during a time of life and the repetition on the kids on fences representing death in two completely different situations. But there's loss in both of them. To clarify, uh, in that moment, Alexander is losing his last connection on the planet, really his one companion that he kept with him, the dog. And in the fence area where the children are on the border, he refuses to give up the new person he has found, the child. There's a third instance of that visual motif, and it is where the boy Salim dies. And where we see that shot of the kids into the different stores of that, is that a parking building? A park? Uh, I'm not sure what that is, but they kind of are hanging into, they're kind of leaning into the bars and from a distance, you kind of get the same imagery of multiple kids being at a, at a, at a high place. Not quite the same as the fence, but I kind of saw the same, a uh, same pattern then being repeated. And now it's a, again, a very tragic moment in the film. I missed that, but that would complete the rule of three. Yeah. In that scene, in the kidnapping scene where there's a kid breaking the window, uh, do you think that was Salim, his friend? Because they were together. That that was his friend that he was kidnapped with, right? Yes, and I think so. Okay, okay. I was just curious. Yeah, that moment happened so quickly that I was like, wait a second. I had to rewind that and rewatch that window breakage thing because I was just like, where did that come from? Because you are lulled into things, even though that's a very tense scene, but you're kind of lulled into like nothing huge is going to happen because of the almost laconic nature of the the storytelling. And then when a window breaks, I'm just like, holy shit, something just happened. Not to like put the movie down, but it's just like, I didn't expect that at all. Again, one take. That's, that stake starts a lot earlier and it just culminates into that moment, which is it's impressive from a technical point of view. Also, when it comes to repetition, two shots, I should say, that I noticed that um, I was very happy about was when they are on the road up to the Albanian border, when he is determined that he's going to take uh, the boy back to his family, they're at this roadside place, and he's asking for somebody to hire a taxi, and there's one bit of it where you are looking at a mirror and it's the reflection of the boy and these guys come in and they kind of break through the the visual um you know like past the boy but it is so much his reflection in that mirror and then later on there's a scene where it's alexander and his mother and he is standing in such a way that he's right there and you see a reflection of him again and the the mirror i think is pretty much in the same place in the frame and i was like oh okay it's almost like he can see himself in the boy. Again, it's like poetry, so if they rhyme. Yeah, and then just to, to keep hammering the same point, he can cut, or he doesn't like to cut, so he has to find up all these creative ways to show, you know, either both characters or to show reactions or to make a point with uh, Alexander's body. Uh, and that's another thing about Angelopoulos, how he uses his cameras. He, he rarely he rarely uses close-ups, which means that the actors very often have to kind of act 
with the their entire bodies, not just they can't rely on their on their being a close up to show some particular facial expression. They have to, you know, they have to just find other ways to to convey their emotion. And I, Bruno Guns does such a great job in in this film. Just having he looks, I mean, he doesn't in the flashbacks he looks strong, he looks energetic, he runs, but in the in the present he looks so defeated in a sense. He does he's able to convey that that attitude about a man who's just who's just going to die soon very very soon i was very surprised when he actually stumbles across his own doctor at one point and it just is like oh uh you said that uh, i should come in when the pain gets to be too much and that things are spreading and he's like i will be checking into the hospital tomorrow and it, i didn't expect his doctor to just be there but again it feels almost like were inside of his memory, and this was just a memory that he had of the doctor, even though I'm like, okay, I'm not sure if he's really there or not. He could just be remembering a conversation, or he could literally have just happened upon his doctor as he's walking down the street. It does give us a nice moment uh, where we see how important Alexander is to other people, because we're seeing him from this spot where he isn't really interacting with his family. He's dismissed his uh, caretaker, so to see that other people find him so important that they wouldn't want to give him bad news is interesting. We're getting an outsider's perspective on the man or rather the myth of the man. I was very surprised when his mother showed up in the film and I kept wondering to myself, is she real or is she a memory completely? And I just I forget as I get older, just how long sometimes our parents are around, which is not a bad thing, but it's just like, I'm looking at Bruno Gans and he looks so old and so defeated, as you were saying, but yet his mother is still around. I'm just like, okay, I saw her just in a flashback. I guess this is the same person, yes, but I'm surprised that she was still alive. I had the exact same response. <laughs> One thing that always amazes me about Bruno Gantz in this film is because the only the one obviously there's the Angel movie which I I'm, I'm kind of blanking on the name right now uh, Wings of Desire Wings of Desire thank you but there's you know the one thing that everybody knows Bruno Gantz is is the Hitler movie right <laughs> and he looks I still so... haven't seen it but yes <laughs> well you've seen the meme right oh yes he looks so different he looks so different in this one he looks he looks much closer to Hitler in the other movie that he is with Angelopoulos in the Dust of Time but in this one he's just couldn't be any more different than Hitler. That beautiful, lush beard that he's wearing. I'm just like, wow, is that real? That, that It looks really good. Yeah, Gans is absolutely fantastic. And I just, I love watching the guy. And I love, too, that in a movie where I wouldn't think that they would do this, that they actually pay some attention to uh, some of the uh, moments like... There's a, a, a rainstorm at one point, and then later on you see Gans and his jacket is all wet at the shoulders, which just makes him look even worse. But that they kept the continuity with the rain and with his shoulders being completely wet, I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of nice. But yeah, then it adds that extra touch of like, look at how downtrodden this guy is, because as the movie moves on, he's getting closer and closer and closer to that moment where he is going to check himself in. To a hospice. I mean, it's in the subtitles, it's translated as a hospital because I don't think there is a Greek word for hospice, but that's what he's going if you, you know, if you kind of follow along. At least I'm, I don't think there is a Greek word for hospice. I could, I could be wrong, of course. 
Yeah, and I mean that is such a, a such an admitting of defeat a lot of times. I had a relative who just recently she was kind of going through the final stages. Literally hospice came out on a Friday the first time and she passed Friday night. So it was like she kind of just didn't want hospice to be there once she admitted that she needed it. It was almost like I admit defeat and was able to let go. And it's just, you know, and I've heard other stories like that. So I'm glad. Thank you, John, for clarifying that this isn't hospital versus hospice, because, yeah, what a difference in terminology. If you look at the plot summary on paper or the premise on paper, I mean, it's a fairly common theme in literature and film, it's a, a you know a man dying is trying to get his affairs in order. I mean that's essentially what the film is about. But there's such an extra dimension, and it's not. And the film is trying again and again to kind of hammer in the point that it's not his death so much that we're mourning here. It's his regrets in life, anywhere from you know not being the husband that he thought he was supposed to be, and to the final moment of not being able to finish that poem that he kind of. Worked presumably the last part of the year of the of his life working on like his he has that conversation with his daughter he says you're such a famous writer why do you have to to suffer over this and he just doesn't have an answer he just feels that this need to complete it again trying to get those last words like literally getting the last words and using the boy to bring him some of those and it's like will he complete this poem before he's done or not. We're not actually sure. I mean, the the boy has this, you know, he does a little song at different points in in the film. And I can't tell if that's something the child made up or if that's uh, a little more traditional. But that was the first indication to me that the child might be trying to feed him the last of the poem. And even that one doesn't finish. Well, yeah, because he says in the song that he's singing, I remember the line, uh, my little flower. And Alexander's like, wait, what'd you say? Did you say my little flower? And then that's one of the three things that he says in repetition at the end of the film. This whole thing of, uh, what is it? Uh, my little flower, stranger, me, very late. Yeah, and the, the, those are the words that the kid sold him quote unquote. So when the child has his song, by the time we hear him finish, what is, you know, the last we hear him say is, I'll send you a tear in A, and then we don't know what it is. It just cuts right off. And I, I'm i a sucker for self-referential layer within layered stuff. And the idea that this is a poem for a poet who can't finish the poem for another poet, and the song he's been given is also not finished. It kind of speaks to the unfinished, raw nature of life. You know, there's there's debate whether or not Angelopoulos is a modernist filmmaker or whether he's a postmodernist, which would be in line with this, the self-referential nature. But I, I do think there is a lot of self-reference in his films. And not only like, you know, things that refer to the, what the story is about, but even things that make you aware that you're watching a film as opposed to being sucked into the story. He doesn't, he, he's quoted in, a lot of times he quotes Brett as being an inspiration. And one thing about Brett is that he, he had this idea about making you aware that you're watching theater as opposed to allowing you to get sucked into the story. And I think, Maybe, maybe other people would have a different interpretation of this, but I think the long takes 
have that effect some somewhat where you can you know you kind of in the middle of a long take say wait was this a long take the entire time so it takes you you know the, the editing editing is perfect in modern movies is perfect in such a way to not make you aware of the edit but this is not what happens uh in Angel- in a lot of Angelopoulos films he he makes you aware of where the camera is and how long it's been before you've it cuts to another scene or or when it actually cuts to another shot and things of that nature can't remember if it's right before he sees his mother, but he goes to, it looks like a coroner's office, and he's talking about how he's seen dead bodies before. I don't mean to put you guys on the spot, but what was your interpretation of that? My interpretation is that it's pretty common for them to find refugees who have passed, because they're, they're on the water. Are you talking about Alexander or, Alexander or the kid? Alexander goes to a place and he's talking to what looks like an official. And then I think the kid goes off on his own. And I think that leads us into the funeral kind of candlelit vigil of Salim. But I'm not sure, you know, I guess to your point, Agatha, it's, I, I guess those two things are related that maybe he had heard about Salim dying. And then he's like, Hey, I want to look at the bodies and see if I recognize anybody. Uh, and that's Alexander. And then, um, but yet, He's got the boy with him, so maybe he would recognize Salim. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And if they found them in the, uh, uh, in the mortuary... Yeah, so it looks, it looks just the scene before that where he finds Salim crying in that building, uh, which we're not, it's uh, under construction. He probably, we don't know exactly how, but probably through his network of, of, you know, other refugee kids that are presumably homeless, you know, he's heard that Salim was hit by a bus. I think on passing, someone says that, oh, this kid was hit by a bus. And we don't know that Salim, but I think maybe we can add two and two together and figure out that that's Salim. And, and whether the kid has seen a dead body or not before, that's, I mean, when he describes how they cross the border, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the life that he's led, he has seen dead bodies. But I kind of figure, I, I kind of got the impression that he is someone who's willing to lie to get his way. Like when he lies to Alexander's that he has a grandmother in, uh, in the, in Albania, but he really doesn't, or he could just be alive. Maybe he doesn't, he doesn't want to go back. And it could be the same thing with the dead bodies that he just, you know, don't, I, I just want to make sure that Salim, his, his best friend in the world is, you know, he wants to see if that's him who's died or if it's someone else. And sadly, we'll learn that it is Salim who has died. 
I don't think it's any coincidence that he was hit by a bus when we have a bus just going through this movie like crazy. We've got the bus, you know, he's looking at that like, oh, maybe this will take the boy up to the border. You know, he's trying to hire a taxi. He's like, think about this bus. And then they get on this bus and they have this, like I said, surreal bus journey. And then I want to say we see a bus maybe one or two times otherwise. And it's just like, Okay, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of buses in this movie. For being a two-hour and some movie, it's pretty bus-heavy. Yeah, and in other movies, he uses trains a lot, like in Landscape in the Mist. He uses so modes of transportation are important. In um, I don't know if you saw Ulysses Gaze with Harvey Keitel. In that one, I, I kind of uh, Agatha mentioned how the the bus could represent the crossing into Hades. Well, in that one, there is a specific. Uh, a specific scene where we see Harvey Keitel crossing a, a very misty river, river which is very reminiscent of crossing into the. And he's going to Sarajevo. That's what where he's going. Where he's in the middle of of uh, uh, the Bosnian War. Sarajevo was under siege for four years or something during that time. So he's literally going into the land of death. And and I could see him kind of rehashing that or or re invigorating that theme with with a bus this time because just the previous a couple of we have the death scene the death of Selim scene then he visits his mother if I'm remembering the order correctly which again we get the impression that his mother is definitely not in good condition and maybe close to death as well or her mind is gone in a sense and then we have that bus scene where he reunites with the boy and then they have that kind of semi goodbye scene and then he he says let's take the bus because you have two hours before the boat leaves when he sees his mother, too, I think there's another call back to him going into the ocean when he was a kid. I want to say that she might be calling for him, or you hear the call. And I know we hear that again right at the very end of the movie, but I want to say that there's a, another call back here to her calling him for supper as he's you know, swimming out with his friends. Okay. The table's set. God, so gorgeous. I, I, I This movie just took me by surprise. I was just so floored by it. And especially because, like I said, the first time I tried to watch it, I was just like, ah, I'm not feeling it. And then that next time, I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And I just went right into that world. This is one of those films that I know I'm going to see over and over. And every single time I see it, I'm going to make more connections. Like, we haven't even gotten into the story of Odysseus. This is definitely an odyssey type of narrative but it's definitely going to stay with me well and speaking of odysseus i mean towards the end of the film when he quote-unquote goes to the hospice it's like he almost just kind of walks through it and into this other world and it becomes again his wife is there and there's dancing and there's music exactly. and at one point he's looking around and it doesn't look like there's any there there it looks like he's lost his sight and then shortly thereafter he's the way he's calling i'm like can he hear things i wonder if he lost his hearing as well but there's definitely a moment where it looks like you know like when you play blind or when you see blind people and there's just kind of like no connection between your eyes and objects, it really feels like he has gone blind in that moment. But that could just be me. It was, yeah, it's when he and his wife are kind of dancing and he's got that wet coat that I was talking about. And I want to say at one point, he's like, I can't hear you. Oh, yes. And And then it feels like after that, he doesn't see her and he calls out and asks about how long tomorrow will be, which is again, that refrain from the poet that we had on the bus where he's like, you know, asking about how long tomorrow will be. And then that 
ends up eventually after he gives his, um, uh, actually, no, it's before he starts to talk about, you know, flower, strange, or very late. Right before that, his wife says that tomorrow will be eternity in a day. And then I stood up and I clapped because that's what I do when people say the title of the movie. Nice. The movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's sort of the key question of the film is mentioned a few times. And I, the poet, men- I don't, I mean, there's so many, I, don't, I think the poet mentions it too. Yeah. Tomorrow. Yes. He definitely does. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, what, what could that mean? Is it, is it a political statement? Is he referring to tomorrow as the time where all these, you know, hard political hardships and, and refugee crisis and all will, will pass or, or how long they will last? Is it talking about that? Is it more of a personal question about afterlife perhaps or, or about his, you know, the continuing of his suffering? Or is it um, a more metaphysical question about, you know, the, the, the nature of the past and the present and how they blend together in sort of the, in the, the minds of, of people? And I made a mess of that, but it's kind of it's 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 a hard thing to grasp around. Oh, it is definitely, and I would say um, it's probably a combination of those, and that you could look at it in all different ways, much like you can look at the the whole story in in multifaceted ways. But the answer, eternity in a day, I I kind of love it when people say the title in the movie too. So I did like we have a title, but eternity is ongoing. There is no end to it. And then there's a day which is finite. And we know, for instance, that we have his one day, we spend 24 hours with Alexander, but he has the rest of eternity that we know over that he knows of, but in this moment, just the day. And his wife also says, give me this day during some of the recollections. No matter what the question represents, the answer seems to always be Always and never. Well, it reminds me of that here in the States where we love to put people in jail, where you say you you have to serve life plus one year. So, like, just guaranteeing that you will never get out of prison. Or, you know, in mathematics, affinity plus one. So, this whole, like, eternity and a day, I mean... I think that might be in a song. It definitely was familiar to me as a uh, a phrase. Um, but then I'm curious again: what is the the Greek version of that? Is does that translate well? Unless I'm missing some nuance, it's it's exactly word for word, eternity and a day. There's an article in the beginning. It's one eternity and a day. So it's one eternity and a day. But I don't I don't see how that would make a difference. All these films are translated very accurately, as far as I can tell. No, last week when we were talking about uh, Christian Lay Off My Car, uh, we we made comparisons between it and Robert Altman's works. And I can't imagine trying to subtitle an Altman film where you've got all of the overlapping dialogue, people talking in the background and all of that. So, you know, and like I said, this one is so tricky with what are the Greek translations of these very very specific words that the boy's bringing to him. Yeah, and there there are things that happen. Yeah, of course, the, the actual poetic nuance of the word that uh, that uh, that of course are, are very very hard for translators to do. But it's also in terms of there are some things that I, I kind of mentioned briefly in passing that are mentioned briefly in passing in the film that are just. I don't think the subtitles def- do do it justice because it's different when you hear it and it's different when you read it. Because like in that baby shower, it it's, it happens in a split second, but they talk about the upcoming elections 
And he says, I've heard the military is going to do something about that. And you get just from the tone of the voices, you get that one of them is against that. And the other one is for that is, is saying it as a, as a hopeful thing that the military is going to stop the leftists from taking power. And when the kid is talking about, again, he's talking about crossing the mines with Salim. Just before that, he says, the gangs entered into our house. And he's talking about the whole civil war thing that is currently going on in, in Albania as, he, as the as the film is being shot. And there's just, you have to, not only you have to be very fast in, in catching that part is because it, it goes in a split second, but you also have to be familiar with the political situation of past and present as the film was happening. Can I just say that I'm so glad that the boy could speak Greek, that they could communicate with each other? Because at first I was like, oh shit, they're not going to be able to speak to each other. And it's going to be this whole thing of them trying to pantomime things. <laughs> and then, and then when the kid starts to speak, I'm like, oh, thank God. Thank God that I'm not going to have to sit through that type of movie. I'm not 100% sure about this. But I think the the bo- the actual actor is of Albanian descent, which was unusual for the time to have in Greece. But I think he's dubbed by a Greek actor, so I don't think it's his voice. Except, and I, again, I could be completely wrong about this, but in the in the Salim funeral scene, I think it's his. I mean, he all, all he says is "Hey Salim, Hey Salim," so he's not saying much there. But I think that's his actually own voice because I'm detecting like a a slight hint of accent. As opposed to his previous dialogue where he says more things. I think that's the dubbed actor. And I think in the Salim funeral scenes is actually his own voice. I could be wrong about this. It's just, it might be just conjecture. So take that with a grain of salt. But if it is the case, it is an interesting choice by Angelopoulos to, to have him keep his voice for that scene, but dub him everywhere else. Yeah. I mean, speaking of his choices, the, um, the boy, the actor was actually a refugee. So not a formal actor, but, um, a boy who is literally living the role. So it brings in kind of a nonfiction to this fiction, nonfiction poetry state. It's naughty as in like knots, not, you know, as in bad. I'm glad uh, that you had to clarify your language. Always. As we talk about how important language exactly. is here. And the boy gives a really good performance during that Salim scene. Oh my God. I was just like, this is, he's really pouring his heart out here. I have so much trouble with uh, children in peril movies like Lion. I cried through the whole movie. So having a movie where children are being exploited and, you know, in reality, it's happening. It's happening right now. And to feel for those characters, I, I just wish there were more people who are either sitting on the fence or totally against uh, helping people who could just feel what I have to feel when I watch these movies, like these children are suffering and that actor just brought it for the whole movie. Just that desperation, the clinging to whatever he could and street smarts. The actor who plays the kid, he's still an actor. So he's definitely has the talent as far as I can tell. And you mentioned about his facial expressions, especially in that funeral scene. He reminded me a lot of the kid from come and see. I don't know if you've seen that, that movie. No. But oh, the thing that sticks to that st- has stuck with me from that movie is the facial expression of the, of the main kid. And I think the kid in that movie is a little older than the kid in Eternity in a Day. But, but they, I don't know, it just, they have kind of a, a similar way that they express pain through their, their facial expressions. Come and see is just so harrowing. Agatha, don't want, don't watch that if you don't like kids in peril. 
I really just watch anything. And if it hurts me, it hurts me. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to admit that I didn't realize that Gans was dubbed for a long time. I think it helps. We're talking about the lack of a lot of close-ups. And then also that great big bushy beard that he wears. I was like, oh, that kind of helps hide his mouth a little bit. So I don't necessarily see that it's not him speaking Greek. So, all right, good. It's hard to tell. Yeah, you have to you have to really focus on his mouth on on just a few shots to be able to tell that what his his uh, lip movement is not does not match with the words that are, we're actually hearing. And I, I think from what I've read and and listen, Angelopoulos, Angelopoulos was a little bit disappointed. He wanted Gans to learn Greek, but he just it could, there wasn't enough time, and Gans I guess couldn't had a very thick accent or something like that. But his previous foreign actors that he's worked with, like Mastroianni. Uh, and even, and even Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel doesn't have a lot of Greek speaking roles in that film. He speaks mostly English because he, he plays an American director, but he speaks a few times Greek. And I'm pretty sure he's, he actually learned enough just to be able to carry that role. And it's, it's, it doesn't sound bad. It sounds pretty good. So I, I give, it's hard. It's really hard to see Harvey Keitel do pulp fiction in 94, then do an Angelopoulos film in 95. But, it, it it is. It, I will never get. That's why it's not my. Uh, Ulysses Gaze is an excellent film, but it's not my favorite. Just because I, I have a, such a hard time, like imagining Harvey Keitel in that role. But he does a fantastic job, and kudos to him for going into all those actual areas that were dangerous for them, where they filmed on location. And so it's definitely it's definitely something that I recommend if you enjoyed this film. I definitely recommend checking out Ulysses Gaze. It, it's a bit slower and it's a bit longer, but it is worth it in my opinion. And if anybody wants to see Harvey Keitel dubbed horribly. When someone tells you there's a movie with Kirk Douglas and Harvey Keitel with a ponytail duking it out in spacesuits, I would think the appropriate response would be going out and tracking down this film as soon as possible and watching it. Which is what I did. And wow was I pleasantly surprised when I discovered Saturn 3, a cheesy yet undeniably satisfying sci-fi thriller about Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett chilling out on a space station doing what seems to be absolutely nothing until Harvey Keitel shows up with a giant killer robot. Really, that's it. That That's all there is. That's the plot. That's the big problem. I mean, that and Harvey Keitel's horribly ADR'd voice. I expected to go to the laboratory. We thought we'd have a welcoming drink first. How's Earth, Captain? You get the bulletins, don't you? You're supposed to scan and acknowledge. It's amazing to see Harvey Keitel and hear somebody with no Brooklyn accent whatsoever in doing his voice. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Andrew Horton, author of the films of Theo Angelopoulos, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener at the Projection Booth, you will get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's a great service, which is available for clients worldwide. It is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is a professional counseling service done securely online. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses when you send a message to your counselor anytime, day or night. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. This is, of course, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Go ahead. Take advantage of this offer. Get 10% off your first monthly visit by visiting our sponsor, betterhelp.com slash projection booth. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash projection booth. 
sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers both Android and iOS. I am so curious as far as how you got interested in Greek film and how you made it over to Greece in the first place. I graduated from college, Hamilton College, upstate New York, and uh, in 66. I was an English major. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had started falling in love with film, but they weren't teaching film courses at the time. What was happening was Vietnam was on. And I was getting a draft notice and I said, I'm against the war. What can I do? My roommate was Greek. In fact, he's still Greek. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, Andy, uh, I graduated in Athens from a prep school. They need English teachers. Why don't you apply? I said, yeah, I'm sure that's going to work. I applied, was accepted, took the letter down to the draft board. They looked at it and they said, we understand. We give you permission to go to Eng- to Greece and teach English. Thank you. You know why? Why? By teaching English to Greeks, you're stopping them from becoming communists. I don't know who that guy was, but I fell in love with him. I went to Greece. I fell in love with Greece. I fell in love with teaching. And I fell in love with uh, film, too, because uh, I got to start meeting the filmmakers. And the local English language magazine needed a film reviewer. Basically, I went back to America, got my PhD, came back to Greece and started teaching more for several years there as a film critic, getting to know them, including Angelopoulos, because his big first film, The Traveling Players, came out while I was there. It was actually important for you to know this. It was released while the dictators were in charge during the dictatorship. Because the the way they presented the film, oh, this is covering Greek culture for many years and so forth. They didn't understand what who Angelopoulos was and what was going on. The film just changed everything, and the dictators didn't last much longer after they saw films like this showing what happened to Greece and the wars and everything. 
that film changed everything and became such a landmark that somebody could make a film like that without Hollywood, without money, uh, really. They just were able to go make it. So long story short, then uh, in my PhD work, University of Illinois, they had film courses. I did a lot of work on film. And then when I started getting a job teaching, I started teaching film. And then I started writing books because uh, I continued to be a film critic for TV and so forth and got to know everybody. Add not only Greece was so important to meet the filmmakers and get to know them. I became a screenwriter. Uh, my credits include, I discovered a guy named Brad Pitt, made his first film, Dark Side of the Sun. You can see it online. It was 1988. He had to get a passport because he'd never been out of America. We shot it in former Yugoslavia. Uh, and I did some other films, too, in Yugoslavia and elsewhere. Add that to writing books. In my life of doing 30 books, uh, some of them I plan, some of them fall in my hands. One of the ones that fell in my hand was my aunt, my father's sister, was an actress in New York. and She was married to George Roy Hill. George Roy Hill did Butch Cassidy and uh, The Sting and many others. I would go in New York and I would sleep in their apartment. And one night, uh, George said, you're a film scholar now. Um, you want to do a book about me? And I said, uh, well, I would be honored, but I have my standard, which is you got to give me everybody that I can get to. He said, don't worry. Let's start with Paul Newman. Paul Newman wrote the preface to the book. He became a good friend. And when I became head of film at Brooklyn College, I mean, he's the kind of guy, Paul, can you come over and visit a class? Sure. He taught me a lot. We're talking Angelopoulos, but Paul Newman is just as important. He was the kind of guy who uh, helps people pull in the wall game. And so one day we're having coffee in a coffee shop he likes. And it's Paul Newman. Because it's Paul Newman, they don't go, ah, ah, what are you doing in our coffee shop? No, no, they just bring. And he says, I got to tell you something. I'll tell you lots about George Roy Hill. I loved working on the films. And my favorite film that I've been in wasn't Bush Cassidy, but Slapshot. He directed that, the ice hockey film. But I got to tell you something you can't put in the book. I think it's important for everybody to have a cause. You think you know my cause. And the guy I work with, whose name is Robert Redford, I've helped him. He has a cause. It's called Sundance. I, that's going pretty well. And the sad thing is George Roy Hill doesn't have a cause. Don't put that in the book. But it's sad. He's such a talented guy, but he doesn't have a cause. That's the kind of person that I, I love working with. And, and uh, so I did that book. And the list goes on. And so I've enjoyed teaching like the one I'm teaching right now, because we've lived in New Zealand. Also, all of my students, 25 students, I'm teaching it online. They all want to move to New Zealand because only 26 people have died in the COVID crisis in New Zealand. And they have a woman for prime minister. So there you go. When you got to Greece the first time, what was the state of the Greek film industry? It was the 60s, like everywhere. Hippies, it, it, Greece was being discovered by the, the people coming to have fun on the Greek islands. But the Greeks were doing the same. But they had a tradition of their, their Hollywood. They were making lots of good comedies. They had a couple of, you know, they had their own kind of, uh, you know, old comedians. 
who were great. I mean, some of their comedies were just wonderful. And they did dramas too. And there were cinemas all over the place. And Greece means a lot of them were outdoor cinemas in the summertime, just to hang a, hang a sheet between two trees and get the projector out. They had their own film industry that way. So the young people were beginning to make different kinds of films. And that brings in Angelopoulos. He studied in France. So there he is in France and Paris getting to meet filmmakers and everything. So, hey, you know, I'm a lefty. I'm not a communist, but I'm a lefty. Let me go back home and start making some films. And one thing led to another. The industry has continued. It's, and they've done a lot, a lot of good comedians and so forth that I'm in touch with. And, of course, many countries going there and making films, too. That becomes part of the Greek industry. Where you're going to work on the foreign films and see what happens. How quickly did you pick up Greek or did you ever pick up Greek? Uh, Part of my job, they gave me Greek lessons. After the first year, I married a Greek. I was married to a Greek for seven years. We have a wonderful son who's an actor in New York and grandsons. now. Uh, So we lived together in Greece for several years and I kept taking Greek all the time. One of my books is a translation of a great playwright, comic playwright, I translated it into English. So there, that was me. And I love the Greek language uh, that because Greece is mixed in with everybody in the same way, Greek coffee is the same as Turkish coffee. Uh, and the list goes on, you know. So they have the culture that's been shared in former Yugoslavia, in Turkey, and that all of that, totally mixed. Yeah. It sounds like Angelopoulos's traveling players was really embraced by the public, which sounds amazing because it's what, like a four hour film? No, three hours, a little bit more. No one could believe that he got away with making a film that covered Greek history from a left point of view of how the country got destroyed during World War II in so many ways. And yet they had a resistance. So Hitler hated Greece because uh, they could never completely conquer it. The Greek resistance uh, fighters were amazing. You go through in your book about 12 different things that are very common across his filmography. Some of those are common across a lot of directors' works, but then there are others where it just seems like he was breaking a lot of new ground. Yes, yes. I'll send you the link for the 20 minute piece I did on eternity in a day. (laughs) I'm happy to, I watched it now. I haven't seen it in years because I give five major points. So you can reduce the 12 down to five in that, that one. Have you heard the eternity in a day joke by one critic? Is that the title or the running time of the film? But I think you picked up on the theme in the book and everything that Homer's odyssey, the sense of coming home is so important. End of your life. What are you going to do? With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've had all of those experiences. What are you going to do? And that that becomes such a, a major theme, the importance of the Odyssey. And if you don't know the poem Ithaca by 
Kabafi, I can send that to you. It's just one poem. Every Greek knows that poem. And the opening of the poem is, when you set out for Ithaca, pray that the road is long. The poem ends by saying, if you reach Ithaca and find her poor, Ithaca has not deceived you. Ithaca has given you the journey. That's Kabafi. It's based on Homer, but that's exactly what Angelopoulos is doing too. The journey, you know, what is your journey? Each film is a journey. Take it away. And I got to know him in the 70s when the film came out because I was there in Athens reviewing it. And there were no other critics in English. And he was impressed that I was an American critic who could speak Greek because he didn't know much English. He could, and my French wasn't very good because his French was good, but uh, there you go. So I got to hang out and go all the years I could come to the films. And he, I don't know if you heard this, I was on the set that he died in, hit by a drunk driver, hit by a drunk policeman. They don't say he's police, they just said off duty, but he was drunk. Several days, maybe two days after I was with him on the set. And the photograph I sent you, I'll send it to again. That's me and him on the set a couple days before he was killed. And he made it clear. We were friends. Uh, Whenever I came, we would get together in Athens for a night or two. Whenever he had a new film and for years, and I would come back to Athens, he wouldn't give me a video or DVD. He would rent a theater and show the film. I had to watch the damn thing. 35 million. I was the only person in the theater. And that's what Theo would do for me. And he said, when I, Andrea, Andy in Greek, Andrea, when I finish this film, the other C is the title. When I finish this film, you and I are going to write a comedy. I know that you love comedy. Uh, I want to make one with you and let's do it together. We shook hands. I had a, had a drink. That was going to happen. He said it was going to happen. I liked him very much because he was so dedicated to what he was doing. And helping people in different ways. You know, you get Harvey Keitel in Greece, you know, like he's there helping and said, you know, you got to try to do this. He would be helpful on all those levels. And of course, everybody who worked with him knew what he was like. So his cinematographer, Arvanitis, was very famous too. Uh, And in one of the documentaries, I think he says, oh, yeah, let me tell you what it's like to work on Angelopoulos. First of all, it's winter. I put on my jacket. I go outside, I get my binoculars, and through the snow, I can see Theo. So I said, okay, we're ready to start. So people worked with that spirit. They said, okay, this is Theo. We got to do it this way. We got to do it whatever. You were talking about the five things that are very common across his films. And of course, one of the things I noticed as I was watching his films was the length and the length of shots and also how beautiful they are. Average Hollywood shots have come down to two or three seconds in many films is, as you see, it can go from three to 10 minutes. And it can be a continuous shot starting here and just continue tracking around to the other thing. And, you know, just incredible. And uh, I have to tell you this, too. I mean, part of what I've experienced over the years is young Greeks don't watch him. And whenever I talk to them, they said, why? He says, oh, we're told it's stupid and long, so we don't want to see them. So part of my missionary work has been over the years I've done screenings in Greek schools, including the one I taught in for the students. And the lights go on at the end and they have tears and a smile. And they say, that's a Greek for thank you. 
they got it. They had just never, they just heard stuff from people said, don't watch, don't watch. And the people who say that are parents or whatever, and they haven't seen, you know, or whatever. But uh, so there you go. His traveling players blew everybody away. They couldn't believe it. Everyone, everyone saw it. The rest of the films, no, many of the people haven't seen it, but they've won so many awards and he has his following and, and people who say, hey, I'm just impressed by that. My trips to Greece, many of the groups, the 21 groups, many of the groups, he was still alive. He would meet with our students. They would see one of his films. And so, you know, I'm good at helping students ask good questions. Uh, we're back here in New Orleans. I started the New Orleans Film Festival here 28 years ago. Susan Sarandon, Dead Man Walking, Sister Helen Pajan. I would have Sister Helen and uh, talking about why did you make this film? Sister Helen, we got to stop the death penalty. So this is part of what I've enjoyed my whole life about film. People who try to make a difference with what they're doing. Was Angelopoulos, was he one of those filmmakers who's more popular outside of his own country than he was at home? Not with necessarily with the, you know, like that this is going to go play with the general public. But he, of course, he has his followings. The Japanese absolutely love him. And I got to go to Japan. I've never been, but they love him. He's compared to Tarkovsky a lot, you know, Russian film. And several of my books are about Russian film because uh, with the collapse of communism, I got fascinated. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? People can do anything. So he does have his followers everywhere. And I get notes over the years, people everywhere, you know, say, Professor, I've read your book. I'm, I'm in uh, um, wherever, whatever country. And uh, uh, can I ask you some questions or whatever? <laughs> so it sounds like writing a book about him was pretty much a no brainer. It was, I was already film critic had written lots of pieces about him. And then I said, I got to pull this together. And everyone said, Andy, you got to pull this together. You know him. He's continuing to grow, you know, and so, hey, let's let's do it. Uh, And it's been translated. I don't know how many languages, but it's been translated into a bunch. Tell me about Eternity in a Day. Is that pretty typical of his filmography or does that one stand out for a particular reason? I think it stands out. It's more approachable in many ways. Think about this. He made it with the crisis with Albania and the Greece having the problem with all of the foreigners, Turks, whatever, refugees pouring into Greece. Freeze frame for a second. One of the films I've made is Laughter Without Borders is the title of my half hour documentary. Are you aware of clowns without borders? They're like doctors without borders. Years ago, when refugees started coming out of Turkey, Pakistani, Afghani, whatever, pouring out of Turkey onto the Greek islands, the Clowns Without Borders started appearing there and doing work, helping children laugh. When I started hearing that, I went online, I got in touch with these clowns and I said, hey, I'm an American, I speak Greek, I'm a film person, I teach comedy, I wanna come make a documentary about you guys. And they said, well, that's a great thing to do, but we, we rotate and we American clowns are now in Africa. We can put you in touch with Swedish clowns. I said, Sweden has clowns? I didn't know that. And they said, yes. And, uh, but they're not on the same islands that we were on. 
they are working in the refugee camps in Thessaloniki, the northern city in northern Greece. And so I contacted them, got together. And with my former student, who's a filmmaker, who had been on my Greek trip several times, including his honeymoon, we went to Thessaloniki in 2016. And we spent two weeks in the camps getting to know them and watch the Swedish clowns. Each night we would go out to eat with the Swedish clowns. There were four of them because uh, they couldn't speak Greek and they, I, I could help them get free meals when people, the Greeks would say, oh, this is what you're doing. Okay, free food. Uh, you'll see the film uh, because A, who are these clowns? They're not clowns. They're young Swedish actors and so forth who want to help and put on a nose, go out there and be with the kids and help them. And uh, just amazing to see what they were doing. Back to eternity in a day, I'm so deeply touched. You're aware that the little refugee boy from Albania, he's a real Albanian orphan. He was the real thing. It's not like we're going to use an actor. No, that's him. And I went, I Googled him from IMDb uh, today, and he looks like a handsome young man now. He's done some other films, you know, like, hey. So, but that was so Angolopolis to say, I want to have the Odyssey theme, an old poet is coming back and he sees this refugee and takes him and wants to help him. You know, Dalai Lama is so great. He, Dalai Lama says two words, help others. And there is a spirit in the film of, I've been through so much and that's what the film gives you. You get pieces of his past and that is what Angelopoulos does so much. History and mythology blending together, but the reality of the crisis of what they're doing. And when I seen the film in Athens, people have tears in their eyes knowing because they have the refugees on the streets and they see so much of what they had to do. And the Greeks have been amazing about accepting so many and trying to help in, in many ways. So I'm touched by the fact that he has the same kinds of themes in all of his films, and yet he picks up on the reality of the moment. We have to deal with this crisis the world is, Europe is dealing with all the time, hundreds of thousands of refugees and this and that, and tell one story and have it. One of the messages I say is that, you know, you don't think of this as comedy, anything, but he gives a sense of hope. And many of his films and hope isn't necessarily a condominium and a fancy Mercedes. No, but a sense of including the ending of the film with uh, meeting the wife, seeing the thing and seeing there is a sense of coming together that he has. Greek Easter was yesterday. Were you aware of that? Yeah. Greek Easter is bigger than Christmas because no big deal for him to be born, but to be resurrected, that's a big deal. So anywhere in the Orthodox world, they sing, eat, dance all night long. It's so totally real and important, that kind of fiesta. No matter what troubles you have, you got to do this. You got to have that kind of ancient. And of course, the point is, those are ancient customs go way before Christianity. You know, that, that's building on everything that's gone back and back and back. Eternity in a day is one that I often show for that reason. Easier to get. And I don't show traveling players very well, very often because 
I, I tell them about it and I show clips of it, but, um, and it is so important, but it's also to see the way he's continued and continued. And I stay in touch with the family um, because they want to do something with the footage that's been left over from the other C and we'll see what happens. Can't say yet. But but with so many of the films and, and, and years will go by that I haven't seen some of them and then I go back and look at them again. One of the reasons I do use uh, Turnitin Day a lot is it's easier for students to get into that. And some of the reviews say that too. They say, huh, this one we can get through. And, and, and just the magic, because I've been on the set as I have with George Roy Hill too. I was on the set of The World According to Garp, got to know Robin Williams and so forth. Anyway, uh, but the magic of, and, and the, the people working with Angelopoulos feel it too. This little migrant boy working with the actor and there's magic. And, you know, hey, what are you going to do? I know you're teaching still. Are you still doing a lot of writing as well? Do you have a book in the works? You know, 30 doesn't seem to be enough books. Uh, I get several publishers beat me up all the time, say, come on, we want another one. And since we're back in New Orleans, we spent 20 years here and our kids were born here. And our son continues working on film here uh, as production coordinator. And our daughter, uh, born here, she's in. she started doing film here, but costume, but she's in New York now doing costume and they've all worked on big projects and they, but they all want to change their careers now because uh, we're here with the granddaughter who's six months old. And my son uh, has to get up at three 30 in the morning and go to work until maybe eight at night. And said, so this is not the way to be a father. <laughs> so the, all of that goes on. But anyway, just to answer your question, a book that I should write that I begin to play with uh, New Orleans on film. Because, you know, what are we going to talk about? Elvis Presley? Uh, are we going to talk about, you know, some of the great films? Uh, and I've known so many of them, including great documentaries that have been made here, too. Professor Horton, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful speaking with you. I don't say goodbye, but talk later. Right, we are back and talking about eternity in a day, and I didn't have a whole lot else I wanted to say. I thought it was interesting last week we talked about another film that played in Con in 98. This film played in Con 98. One, um, John, your effort of going through and watching films that won Con in the 90s, I think that's very admirable, and I would, I think I'd like to do the same thing, except um, speaking of Pulp Fiction, I might have to skip 94. I don't think I can take watching Pulp Fiction another time. The late '90s were a very interesting. So '97, it was the Eel, uh, a Japanese film, an excellent Japanese film with a, a taste of cherry. The Eel is by uh, Shohei Mamura, and the Taste of Cherry is by Abbas Kariosami. '98 was this, and the grand prize was won by the Life Is Beautiful by Roberto Benigni. I'm sure you've all seen that film; it's a very popular one. And '99 was Rosetta by the Darden Brothers. Which is another another fantastic. So the late nineties was a fantastic run for Cannes. I can't I can't speak for all the nineties. Again, I I have nothing against Pulp Fiction. is a fa is a great enjoyable film, but I I have my problems with Tarantino. Uh, that I don't think they're uh they're I should mention them here. I love a lot of his output. I don't like the man 
And there's a lot of problematic stuff even in the content. It, it's pretty thorny. It's amazing looking at what else was coming out in 1998. And it's like, I didn't think of like 98 as being this fantastic year for cinema, but it's just like looking just at the films that were submitted for an Academy Award. And this one didn't make the short list, but it was submitted. But yeah, you talked about Life is Beautiful. That won the Academy Award. Brundle the Run was the same yeah. year. Uh, Made in Hong Kong, the Fruit Chan film was the same year. I, you know, like I said, Crystalia of My Car was the same year. It was just like, oh, wow, all of these films were coming out at the same time. This is pretty amazing. It's also the same year as Pi. So we got yep. uh, Aronofsky for the first time. And uh, I believe Following was also that year. Oh, so. yeah. yeah wow. it was. Yeah. So 98 was a, a definitely a good year. This is a, a story that Angelopoulos likes, likes to repeat uh, a lot in, in a lot of interviews, but the the jury president of uh, of that year in Cannes was Martin Scorsese, who's a huge fan of Angelopoulos. So it's no surprise that he won. But another another jury member was uh, Kaya Chen, who directed Farewell My Concubine, another notable That's Chinese film. Wonderful film, yeah, yeah. And he talked after the screening. He went to talk to Angelopoulos, and he told him that he saw an illegal copy of The Traveling Players. Which inspired him to be a filmmaker. So he repeats that story every time he gets a chance. Cause that's what, that's how I know. But yeah, it, it is, it is, it is notable. And he's, this is something that Angelopoulos is a kind of a sour point to him. And he, he's complained about it a lot that he, at least as he sees it, he's a lot more popular outside of Greece than he's in Greece. Like I mentioned, I, had never seen any of his movies play on TV. I, I personally, I've never seen them being shown on theaters, although I'm sure they did. It's just, I probably missed them or they weren't abundant enough. And it's not like we don't have movies shown on TV. There are Greek old, especially old Greek movies on TV all the time in Greece, but I don't ever remember seeing an, an Angelopoulos uh, film. And that's something that he mentioned that, you know, there's this Chinese directors and South Korean directors who, and Japanese directors who cite me as a strong inspiration. But um, unfortunately, I just, I just can't seem to get the same footing in Greece. At least that's what he's, he, he claims to be the case. Hey, man, it's Jerry Lewis. You know, he got so appreciated in Europe and America, he's still treated like a joke. Yeah, I think Scorsese, you know, he should probably try doing some long takes. I think he'd probably be good at it. Yeah. He tries occasionally. I think so. Your interview with Andrew Horton had that interesting bit of information where the average Hollywood take is what? What did he say? Like three minutes? Three no, seconds. no, it was like three, three seconds. seconds. Three seconds. Three yeah. seconds was the average Angelopoulos take was uh, I believe it was a four longer. minutes. So there's definitely a contrast there. And I think to me that just, you know, if you have to cut that often, it just shows lack of confidence in one, in your cinematography and two, in your actors, whereas Angelopoulos has none of those. He's very confident in his camera work and he's also very confident in the performances of of his actors so he doesn't so his shots even though they are they do have that slowness they still manage to remain very very interesting regardless of how long they last i am really looking forward to diving much more into his filmography i downloaded a, a bunch and watched a few before we ended up recording but there's a whole lot more and i want to say that this one it's not that easy to find i think that it's still available on DVD, but I don't know if there's a Blu-ray copy of this out there. And the DVD, 
God love them. New Yorker films, uh, releases aren't necessarily the best in the world. I love their movies, but gosh, I wish that they would have better transfers and better releases of them. If memory serves, when I was looking around for this, it was like, yeah, you can buy the DVD for a bunch of money or good luck finding it in other places. Yeah, it, it is hard. There are a couple of Angelopoulos films that are available on Blu-ray. I think Landscape in the Mist is one of them, but I'm, I'm not aware of, of, especially his later stuff. I don't think this one is available on Blu-ray, which is a shame because it would be, you know, a 1080p or 4K rendering of this would be fantastic. Yeah, let's see. I see an Angelopoulos box set with it, The Weeping Meadow, and I'm not sure the other one. That's 60 bucks, or you can uh, buy Eternity in a Day on its own for 50 bucks. So, yeah, good luck with that. There's a couple other versions out here that are just, you know, out of print. It looks like a Russian version. So knowing Russian DVD, it wouldn't have English subtitles on it. And it would probably be dubbed. Or uh, I've found I've have grabbed a couple films that realizing that they're Russian releases and they're not necessarily dubbed. It's almost like a, a Russian guy doing voiceover. For the <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I know those. Yeah. I know those. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can. Hear, I thought I was going crazy. You can hear the actual dialogue, and then with like a split second delay, there is a a very thick Russian voice explaining in Russian what they're saying. Now I need to experience this. I will hook you uh, up. Excellent. Because there have been times where I'm just like, oh, I can finally watch this movie. Oh, the, you know, I've been looking for this for so many years, and I'll download it and I'll start to play it. I'm just like, what the hell is happening? Because like, even when I like spot checked it, I would spot check it and be like, okay, yeah, they're speaking English, and I, I hadn't waited long enough for that Russian guy to start talking. Yeah, it is. It is quite an experience, and it's. It, I don't know how you could watch any movie like that. I was wondering if Angelopoulos had ever cited Tarkovsky or Kurosawa as uh, kind of influences, if anybody knew. I know he's compared to especially Tarkovsky, but I know that, well, in talking with Horton, he was saying that he loves, uh, loved Fellini, that that was where he really was inspired by. And I can kind of see that from like that. I'm a chord looking back at your life mm-hmm. kind of thing or that eight and a half, you know, uh, floating above the traffic kind of thing. It almost like those poetic images. I'm like, okay, I can see that being an influence on this guy. So Fellini is true and, and a big influence is Mizoguchi. Oh. So it, okay. It, that makes and sense. If you look at their styles and I, this is anecdotal. Uh, but I do know that his movies are popular in Japan, and I have been told that they are sometimes do uh, local festivals. They do double features with Mizoguchi and and uh, and Angelopoulos because they're they're very similar. If you look them, if you compare them side by side, they Mizoguchi also has deep focus, not heavy use of close up and long takes, and and that's right up Angelopoulos's alley. I have a blind spot for Mizoguchi, so I really need to repair that and watch some more of his films him and then ozu i just i I just haven't seen any ozu i've i've owned some over the years i bought a whole bunch on vhs when i was working on blockbuster and they were getting rid of them and i was like sure yeah i'll take 24 eyes i'll take this i'll take that but never got around to watching them the writer of a lot of Angelopoulos films and the writer of this film or the co-writer tony noguera he's also a famous screenwriter who's worked with a bunch of famous European directors, including Fellini and including Tarkovsky. I think, I don't know if you, did you do Nostalgia on your show, Mike? 
Not yet. We've only talked about Stalker and Solaris so far. But he he also is the writer of Nostalgia. It was when Tarkovsky left the Soviet Union, and that was one the first film that he did. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Uh, it's it's I like it personally. But yeah, so Tony Noguera is is definitely a someone who has collaborated with a lot of famous European directors, and a, with he collaborated a lot with Angelopoulos. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Tatooine was just a big ball of dust until R2 and 3PO showed up. But since then, my life hasn't been the same. From a moisture farmer on a remote desert planet to a leader of the rebellion fighting for freedom throughout the galaxy. But now the rebellion faces even greater odds, and I must be ready. I must follow Ben Kenobi's teachings, learn more about the powers of the Force and becoming a Jedi Knight, if I'm going to be prepared for a confrontation with Darth Vader. See it. When the Empire Strikes Back. That's right. We are kicking off Sci-Fi June. Not Sci-Fi July this month, just because there's more weeks in June than there are in July. And we've got a lot of stuff coming up. We are kicking it off with The Empire Strikes Back. I don't know if you guys have heard of that movie, but apparently it's supposed to be popular. Until then... Oh, no, you haven't? I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Agatha and John. John, what's been keeping you busy, sir? So, I am still writing reviews for vcinemashow.com. Uh, Asian, mostly fo- entirely focusing on Asian cinema. And another thing, just like hundreds of people have done during the, the lockdown days of the pandemic, me, myself, and another writer from the cinema have started a podcast dedicated to Asian cinema. Your audience can check it out. It's called Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. Google it and, uh, let us know if you, if you enjoy it. And Agatha, what's new in your world? We are podcasting, my husband and I podcast on Cinemaspection, so it's cinemaspection.com, and we can be reached on Twitter at Cinemaspection, you know how tweets go. But we're just getting started to, um, we just finished up with some classic sci-fi, and I think our next one up is going to be Time Bandits. So we're getting into some fantasy. Nice. Yeah, we're doing Time Bandits in uh, June as well. That'll be nice. You can do back-to-back yes. Time Bandits episodes. Just keep that conversation going. You can talk about how they all they did was use miniatures, that there's actually no little people in the movie at all, and that was just like gigantic sets. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Mm-hmm.